I think about this a lot. When you put your hands over your ears, the sound that you hear is so much like the ocean. And we can remind ourselves when we, we tuck in like that and, and we close off from everything else that we are part of nature in the sound of nature and the way things are pulsing and, and moving within us. And that's such a beautiful reminder. You don't need a conch shell. You just need to put your hands over your ears and listen to the sound of life, which is in you and in everything. to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with C. Marie Furman, a broadly published poet and essayist devoted to listening closely to the earth and its beings. C. Marie was born in Colorado, the daughter of a Southern Ute mother, On January 1 of this year, she celebrated her 50th birthday on ancestral land. Every moment, from her birth to now, informs Seamarie's poetry, essays, and teaching. She directs the poetry concentration for Western Colorado's MFA program, is the nonfiction editor for High Desert Journal, and directs the Elk River Writers' Workshop. Her recent books include Camped Beneath the Dam, Poems, from Floodgate in 2020, and the co-edited volume, Native Voices, from Tupelo in 2019. Sea Marie lives high in the mountains of west-central Idaho with her partner Caleb and their dogs Carhartt and Cisco. Hi, Seamarie. It's so good to get to see you today over there in Idaho. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. And it's good to see you as well. I'm, I'm surrounded by snow right now, which feels very um, embracing. And I'm enjoying that. And it's perfect, I think, for our conversation today. The, the name of the podcast, of course, is How It Looks From Here. And so I'm curious, you look around and you see snow. Is there anything else you see, how it looks from right there, right now, that you'd like to mention? Mm. Yeah, so I'm in McCall, Idaho, at just about a mile high, just outside of town. And we have a small cabin um, that sits among dug fir and lodgepole pine and some grand fir, aspen. And so from what I can see here, are trees with boughs, arms full of snow, which always feels to me like um, water bearers, just carrying snow in and carrying water to us and and ensuring a green and beautiful spring. So it's very monochromatic, but in that monochrome is hope. 
And I really, I think that that, that buoys us, even though our home is small, the whole front of it is glass. So we can watch long snowfalls and it's kind of high up in trees. So we're at the level sometimes with owls and, and stellar's jays and uh, evening grosbeak. So it's pretty amazing. We have everything from mountain lions to black bear, uh, a little raccoon that comes through and fox and, and our two dogs, which um, are often sometimes the most enjoyable thing to see out the window when they're covered in snow and wagging. Just deers for you, precious ones. Yeah. I introduced you as a poet and essayist. The way that you speak and the way that you describe what you see and really the content of what you see is simply poetic. How long in your life have you been aware Mm. that you are a poet? That's a beautiful question. When I was very young, I wrote a series of books called Tommy the Toothbrush that had probably no poetry in them because Tommy would go on adventures at night while I was in bed. And and um, I'm not sure any of them were, were very poetic. And then I gave up writing after, um, not after that series of books, but after I got to the point where it was schooled out of me and I was told that that if I were going to make money, which is, of course, the most important thing um, sometimes in our society, seen by some, that I would have to do a job that that was um, that was money making, which poetry or writing in general was not considered. So it, it kind of went on the back shelf, even though all through college I would sneak in classes. And um and then finally did my MFA. I started um, in my early 40s. And then I got right back into poetry. And um, and I think I had to be that age, Mary, to really be able to understand the world through that poetic lens. So I'm glad that I came to it later. And I'm glad I came to it with all the experiences I had until this point that I might see the way I do. Yeah. I You know, this uh, podcast is for the month of February, the month of love. And you seem to be living your life pretty much in love with the natural world. Mm-hmm. Is, is that accurate or is that just my projection because I like your writing so much and I like you? <laughs> oh, uh, thank you. I, I think that's absolutely accurate. And, and I think that it was a relationship that was created without my knowing. When I was, um, my, my dad was, was very active outdoors and loved to be outdoors and was very in love with the earth. He just liked to dig holes and look and see what was in the earth. So the actual physical earth he was in love with, but also with hiking and hunting and fishing and, and beautiful wide open places. He grew up on a ranch in Montana, but, um, so that, that probably was the beginning was, was admiring his love of place Hmm. from that. Um, and probably their understanding, my parents let me move my bedroom outside in the summer. So my bed was out on the patio and I had my little clock there and my books and, and from about third grade on, I could sleep as long as it wasn't, you know, terribly cold outside. And that 
my mom said saved her from having to go get me off the grass and, and cure all the bug bites that I would get because I would get out of bed and go outside and just sleep on the grass outside. So I think that the relationship caused the love. You know, it's I, I don't see the earth as an object, but as a friend, as a as just an extension or another relative. And so to me, sleeping on that lawn was just sleeping with a friend. And of course, my dog was there, too. So I'm sure that added to it. I could sleep with Taffy then, who was not allowed in the house. With Taffy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So that, to me, you know, the waking up to robins and meadowlarks and falling asleep to, at that time in northern Colorado, you could see the Milky Way and you could see so many different stars and Horsetooth Mountain was just a shadow to my left. And, and um, that place became a friend who I could trust and go to when humans failed me. Hmm. And I still feel that way. So um, hmm. the love is so much deeper than we think of love between humans. Yeah. I know you know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah. You know, I know that you have, in, in more academic terms, you've, you've explored what this thing uh, about binaries is. You know, and so the binary human, non-human, for example, the the whole thing that we explore in full ecology about this separation illusion, this illusion that we are separate from the natural world and the mess that that's gotten us into. And so I feel curious about how you use writing and your teaching, really your precious life, to kind of unveil the binaries so that they can be revealed as illusory anyway. Mm -hmm. That it's really not, it's, that if there is separation, it's contained in connection. Mm -hmm. And so you would go to the natural world, you would go when the human behaviors were just not making any sense, were harmful, were confusing, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I think that's kind of drawing in an intellectual construct on the one hand, but I know that you live in academic circles, so I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, I'm fortunate to first have gotten to work with Indigenous Knowledge for Effective Education program where we focused on teaching Indigenous culture into curriculum for Native students who were going to become teachers in reservation schools. So in that setting, it was, it was so easy because I was talking to community members that felt the same way I did. So the only thing that we might run into there is, is non-native scholars who would see that as problematic and, and push against it and, and think that it could create problems if we started to see the earth as relative, which is a whole nother conversation. But since then, I've been fortunate enough to be in teaching positions where, particularly with Western Colorado University or any of the workshops I do from fish trap to free flow, um, it's lauded that I see the world this way. And it's encouraged um, to teach it this way. We did a wonderful workshop with free flow, which, which does these classes on rivers, or in our case, we backpack near a river um, as I wanted us to see the river as a companion, not a carrier. Like we weren't using the river for anything but the friendship of walking alongside it. And in that way, 
try to dissolve the difference between how we think we should live and be with ways that we can live and be and have relation with place. And we started talking about a concept that's really become important to my life, and that's transformational instead of transactional experiences. So I've taken that forward now into all of my work and all of my writing in how do we transform rather than have a transaction? How do we transform each other and how does place transform us? And in in my writing and in, in all of these, I try to show how our bodies are not separate from the place, from the earth, from coyotes, from lakes, how we just reflect one another and how that, that is also um, showing within our current climate crisis, within the COVID crisis, on the earth and on our bodies. It's being reflected in both, both places because what we do to one is going to affect the other. And so these circumstances that seem external to us, COVID and climate change, they are a result of transformation that has perhaps been unconscious, would you say? But they are transforming of us now, and here we are now, so what do we do from here? I think that they are the way they are because our relationship was transactional. I see. And that we started to commodify nature. We started to, nature will do this for us. But we were we reciprocating? Was there any sort of, you know, even in recreation, is it reciprocal recreation? It's just an expectation that nature, when we go to it, owes us something. And so it became a transaction. I come here, it gives something back. I have timber, we sell it for money. I have land, we sell it for money. The whole idea of land ownership is problematic and creates a barrier to think that we can own a place of land or trees on a place of land is sometimes amazing to me to think about. So I think that transactional relationship and that commodification and anything that uses those financial terms has caused the problems that have begun to transform us because I'm not sure nature speaks in, in transaction, only in transformation. Does that make sense? Like it can only reply. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a question. Talk about um, something transformational that has gone on between you and Carhartt or Cisco mm. lately. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Carhartt and I, Carhartt's 16, and she recently was diagnosed with old dog vestibular. It's a terrible name for, for a disease. Um, has a, a hint of ageism in it that seems awful. But anyway, something happens um, with a crystal in her ear, and she gets off balance, and she has these episodes where it looks like she's she's drunk, and she can't walk, and she stands, and she falls over, and it's caused a, a permanent tilt in her head on the right side, and we never know when they're going to strike, and it's it's very frightening when they do. And she went on five, six-mile hikes into the desert with us over these last um, last 10 days or so. That relationship caused me to transform the way I think about how we hold what we're able to do and what we think we're not able to do. 
and watching her just going for it with everything. She knows, she knows these happen. You can see the terror in her eyes when they come. She still goes for it and she's still out there trying. And, and that transformed the way that I see myself going forward. Can I give her anything back for that lesson? Other than the, the relationship we have that we've always had, I cannot. She has transformed me through that lesson, just as a river transforms me in the way that that I might think about um, a, an entire drainage or a certain fish. It's not I give and and it gives me something back. It's that our presence together is going to change one or both of us. Hmm in a way that mm. doesn't have to do with money. And it sounds like your presence there with Carhartt is, rather than restricting her based on your notion of her limitations, encouraging her to be the boss of her own body and keep going if that's what she'd like. Indeed. Does that seem so? We, we say, let Carhartt be Carhartt is kind of our motto, except uh, we were at Comb Ridge, which um, you probably know has some pretty high drop-offs. I couldn't let Carhartt be Carhartt too close to the edge. There's a, <laughs> I, uh, um, yeah. yeah, that was too yeah. hard on me, no matter what, what she thought she could do. I, um, I couldn't bear the thought of her falling off if she had an episode at that time. But sure. for the most part, if she was ready to go, we're ready to take her and let her live her fullest life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Deepest friendship, transformational friendship. Indeed. Well, you know, I'm aware newly, actually, because I, I just got to inter be introduced to this essay that's been around for a while of yours called The Aspen. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is just a revelation of this kind of love that we're bringing into the conversation, this love that is the way for us to move together into and through whatever climate change has to bring. Um, it's not about climate change, but it is about this presence in circumstance and this presence with the non-binary relationship of life and death. What would you say about that today from where you sit and how things look from there? I would say that that experience that, that um, I talk about in Aspen, which is the death, the drowning of my first husband, Randy, was one of the most important things that has ever happened to help transform me in a way to understand that love is not Valentine's Day mm. and that, um, the, that our lives are so much deeper than the surface of objectification or commodification and that everything that happens triggers the next thing that's going to happen if we're open to it. Randy's death broke me in ways that, that are innumerable and were very painful and um, took a long time to get past, but they opened me in ways that I will never be ungrateful for. That death has, has made 
me able to love on such a deep level that that I, I can't even imagine living without that. And it's terrible. I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I think back to my person at that time when it happened, and I feel so sorry for her because that pain is still really intense. I can still touch the pain of, of his sudden death and trying to give him CPR on the banks of, of the Clark Fork River. And I feel so sorry for that person at the same time. I just want to whisper to her, trust me, this is, use this to, to make your life not about you. Mm -hmm. And it did. And, and I'm so thankful for that, even for the pain that it was. I can't, I can't even, you know, it, I'm not saying that I wish he died or that I'm glad that that happened in that way, but I embrace what happened afterwards. And I'm glad that, that, that opened me up to a much deeper understanding of the thin veil that exists between what we see and what we cannot see and the love that we draw in the form of a heart and the love that we emit from the center of our being. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. One of the things that it seems like is coming to the fore um, with COVID and the isolation that we experience from others, uh, and also with climate change and just the profound uncertainty. I mean, think of the people in Colorado here just the other day and the Marshall Fire over in Boulder County who one day are just having dinner between the Christmas holiday and the New Year's holiday. And the next day, have no home. The next day, all is gone. Everything that they had that they recognized as their life at home, that safe haven, is gone. And so what we seem to be missing, but may be invited into with all of this, is the capacity to hold grief and generativity and creativity and joy and presence at the same time. Is there any way to put words on that in this conversation? Like, what does, what does that mean to hold grief? This is what your life has asked of you. I'm not sure in general that we're grieving enough. What I, I find is that that happened in Boulder, you know, Denver area, and then two days later, there was something else. We just, when do we, anymore, with so much going on, when do we have the time to grieve? And who teaches us how to grieve? How do we learn to grieve? And how do we learn to grieve for a loss that is a non-human loss, the loss of home or habitat, which, you know, if we're careful enough, we can also extend that to the beings who are losing homes and habitat through these destructive wildfires that are happening all over the, the West and all over the world, really, and, and maybe take some of the empathy that, that we can understand for another human being losing their home to understanding 
what it means for an, a, an other than human being to lose their home. And so that's one way of looking in, but I don't, I don't know that we are grieving and I don't know that we know the right way to grieve. Hmm. Well, how would you describe grief when it's really happening? What is, what would signify grief that is loving? I can only imagine it through contact, which is sad with COVID. We can't reach out and hug the people we want to hug right now that we need to hug. We're being taught through through necessity to distance ourselves from others. Um, Through popular media, of course, for the last 50 years, we've learned a stoicism and that we've learned to apologize for tears. How many of us as women start crying and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and stop ourselves like we need to apologize for having that feeling when anger is so allowed now, but that feeling of grief and that showing of grief is not. I, for me, the deepest expression of loving grief is a physical expression. You know, I had, I had three friends lose their entire homes. They had one friend could only get her cat, nothing else. All of her books, she was, she was also a a writer. All of her books, all of her work is lost. She didn't save it on a cloud. She didn't have a thumb drive with her. She lost everything. Not unlike um, what a lot of of Barry Lopez lost um, a couple of years ago. And there aren't words for that. Mm -hmm. There's an expression that we can't give right now, which is hugging. But there's also a weeping Mm -hmm. that we can do. Like I always, I I love to say, and I think I got this from Brene Brown, so I want to be... able to credit her, but we can get in the ditch with each other instead of trying to constantly pull each other out and say, it's going to be okay. Let's get through this. Why not just get in the ditch and sit with that pain for a while mm-hmm. and allow ourselves that sobbing, racking grief, which was part of my 50th. Um, I just turned 50 on New Year's day and on New Year's Eve, I spent two hours thinking of the last 50 years. And I sobbed uncontrollably for much of that. And I just let my body have that um, as a, as almost ceremony, Mary, it, which is something we've lost too. We have ceremonies like graduations and weddings, but do we have a ceremony beyond a funeral for loss? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't even, we can't even have those now, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that being in physical company and being hugged and hugging and asking for contact and just being together and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. humming, singing. Just holding someone's hand. F- making food, being together. Mm-hmm. And, and and with the sadness in the ditch, like you say. Yeah, and Vulnerability. When, when are we going to, you know, take off this tough Westerner or American costume that we've put on about how, you know, we're rugged and can make it through everything and realize that we may have been beaten in some places. And, you know, and I know you know this, you cannot truly love unless you're vulnerable to losing love. Yeah. You cannot truly love a planet 
unless you're vulnerable to losing the planet. And when the idea of loss becomes too much to bear because you love it so much, you will you will change. You will do something to protect that life. Yes. And as long as we remain invulnerable to one another, to saying the things that we want to say, to to making the moves, the, doing the actions that we need to do, we not only we not only don't get to express our love, we also can't feel it back because that that's it's not a one way street. Loving something allows us to be loved back. Holding something. Well, and one of the things I wonder about with COVID is if we are really have the opportunity to step outside. I mean, you are outside all the time, but there are many, many people who who long for and feel drawn to the natural world and don't have the the background that you have in spending so much time in in nature and with animals. Um, and And so COVID in some ways is saying, don't be fooled that humans are the only ones with whom you can have this loving connection, with whom you are connected. And so you were talking about if we don't allow ourselves to be available to those vulnerabilities with other people. Well, we're in the position of being available to the vulnerabilities with the whole natural world. What does that make you think? Um, what, what kind of yeah, suggestions might you have for people mm. who are listening? You know, I, I love that Robert Bringhurst, who is who's a delightful poet and a wonderful scholar, said, you cannot touch something without being touched back. This, you know, during this time, I've heard so many people say that they long for touch. And um, I know that they're thinking human touch. But how many different ways can we go out and let the grass dance around in our hand or um, hold hold a tree and feel the tree press against us. That being is feeling us as we feel it. But again, that's that open to vulnerability and understanding and belief that the the planet and the beings that are non-human are as alive as we are, are experiencing very similar things. Um, just to be able to walk outside barefoot, that contact that aliveness. There's science behind that. Yes. You know, behind what barefoot walking yes. can actually do for you physically and emotionally and um and our mental health. Any, you know, and, and I have such limited experience with the world. It is mostly on North America, so I'm not sure what other places are like. I do know that outdoors is a privilege. I know that that we are very privileged to be able to get to where we can get so quickly in the mountains, that we have a wilderness within 10 miles of our house, that that um, we can go to places that people have a lifetime vacation and that, you know, that was it. I understand that that's a huge privilege and it's um, it's sad that that is true. But I think that we can still make connections in the smallest patches of dirt. And that sounds altruistic, but it's what I have to offer that just putting your hands in dirt. I read this uh, wonderful story from people who were over 100 years old. The one thing they had in common, all of these centurions, was they gardened. They had their hands in dirt. 
And whether that was the because the food they ate or anything, but the time outside and the hands and the soil had to have something to do with it, along with growing your own food and ingesting what, what you've grown. Mm. So, yes, you know, just stepping outside and, and closing your eyes to what you can see and listening and smelling. And I know Drew Lanham talks about this. Put a bird feeder out and see who you can attract. And bring that nature into your space. Grow something on, on your porch if you can do that. For winter here I grow. I try to have plants in here just to have those extra lives that that are in this place with me. Go outside and just listen. And just listen. Just listen to what's out there or what's not out there. Mm-hmm. Listen through the backup signals and the motors going by and the planes going overhead. Listen and see what's underneath mm-hmm. that. We can also, and and I've, um, I think about this a lot. When you put your hands over your ears, the sound that you hear is so much like the ocean. And we can remind ourselves when we we tuck in like that, and and we close off from everything else, that we are part of nature, in the sound of nature, and the way things are pulsing and and moving within us. And that's such a beautiful reminder. You don't need a conch shell. You just need to put your hands over your ears and listen to the sound of life, uh-huh. which is in you and in everything. The magnificence of the biome talking to itself. Yes. That's wonderful. Well, uh, there's one more thing I'm thinking as we kind of come towards the end. I'm curious. Let's see. I think it was Hell's Canyon Revival mm-hmm. that you wrote. Yes. Um, and you wrote about this experience down there in Hell's Canyon, there between on the Snake River between Oregon and Idaho. And one of the things that you mentioned toward the end of that essay, and you've mentioned it elsewhere too, referring to your ancestry as both Italian and indigenous to this continent. We are in this position here in climate change of contributing to the problem even as we are invited to be a part of the solution. So in your experience and observation, what do you have to say about that today? I think of this so much when I'm asked to go somewhere and teach and teach about nature and writing. And I think of the footstep that I'm making to get there Uh. and how that often feels so uncomfortable or climate change meetings that they have where how many people fly in on private jets. Yeah. Um, And so once again, we're making something a privilege, even getting to talk about climate change has become a privilege. Are we looking to those people who have been removed by climate to talk about what it's really like um, in places that they cannot now escape? That's difficult. That's and right. They, <laughs> the guilt of living, Mary, is is extreme. Caleb, my partner, and I talk about it all the time. We tried to go a year without plastic, and in a mountain town, we couldn't do it. We can't get our food without plastic. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't, during COVID, they, you had to use plastic bags. They wouldn't allow you to bring your own bags in. So all of these things that we try to do and the fact that, you know, you and I are speaking today because salmon can no longer come up the Snake River. So is that the sacrifice we've laid at the foot of the dam? We are magnificent beings that have figured out amazing things, just like this internet and Zoom that we're doing, 
surely we can figure out a way to coexist on this planet that can't, that won't harm it, that won't kill it and us. We talk about loss of species and we forget to put ourselves on that list. Right. And we are at the very top of the list right now. Yeah, we are making choices all the time about our own viability. We are. We are. And, the, you know, we try to make the best choices we can, but it's so hard. It's excruciatingly hard to live without doing damage. And we, we've talked about moving and we would want to build a, a house that was solar friendly and green. But then we remember that a house is the last crop you're ever going to plant. Do we want to take up space in that way? Can we move into something older? Mm -hmm. We try. And I know everybody else is trying in their little ways too. And maybe that's all we can do right now. And if it's just some little give that we all do, I think it'll make a, a big difference. I also love that the, the um, Koyuk, Koyuk, I know I'm saying that wrong, a tribe in, in Alaska says, never forget that the earth has eyes. And so when I'm hiking and, and when I'm out or when I'm thinking of driving for the sake of driving, I think this isn't something that goes without another seeing. The earth knows. And the earth, you know, is, is going to have to be witness to that. And also, I'm thinking of like Jesus here where the the person keeps dying for your sins. The earth keeps in little ways dying for all of our sins. And that's incredibly hard to live with and hard to atone. Yes. And then one of the things that we talked about just earlier before we started recording was the notion of getting right-sized. Mm -hmm. You know, what, did, what that means for human beings to be right-sized. And perhaps at this point... Yes, we are living in systems that contribute to the problem. But as we get more in our right size, rather than assuming that it is our right to extract and so forth, extract with abandon. I mean, the weird thing is that if we're going to build electric cars, we're going to have to extract some pretty fabulous minerals to make that possible. So it's not a matter of there not being humans in the picture. Humans have been in the picture a long time, but they've been right-sized. And so I guess that's part of the, the challenge in this love month is how do we fall in love so much with the natural world that we can't imagine being anything other than our right size, that we deserve to be here, but we don't deserve to take more than we need. I love thinking of that, and I, I love that we were talking about the um, Anasazi and Hopi and Dene that lived on Combe Ridge, <clears throat> where I spent the last 10 days, and there's evidence of them living there for over 10,000 years, scientific evidence, but the evidence that is left is minute. It's some some rock art that is going away, that's eroding, that will be gone um, some of it in 10 years, some of it in 100 years will no longer be there. There's some cliff dwellings um, that were made from the earth. Those will be gone. They will go back into the earth. And and um, the pottery, which I love the story of breaking pottery. Um, when someone's done using a pot or the pot gets a chip, it goes right back into the earth. They were here for over 10,000 years. And soon every sign of them will be gone. 
we've been here as as modern um, colonial citizens for our 300 years, and it'll be 10,000 years from any sign of us to be gone. We have done damage that can never be healed, at least not in our way of thinking of, of ever. And if we don't start reducing ourselves, I love that idea of right size, living within our means, which used to mean within our budget, the money. But what if we thought about our means as, as living within what we need from the planet and everything comes from there. Even the plastics that are going back in, right? you know, came from the earth. Yeah. And our relation with that planet, our absolute mm-hmm. kindred connection that there is nothing out there with which we aren't connected. Right. And finding ways to love ourselves and to um, enjoy our lives that don't include buying another thing. Right. Or even buying a ticket somewhere. That love affair of nature, you go into somewhere long enough and you be present there and you feel what you feel there, you you can't help but fall in love, yeah. get to know it. You know, the phones are, are bad and, and they have a lot of bad qualities for sure, but they have an app where you can scan a, like a leaf of a plant or a flower and it'll tell you. We did that in our, we categorized them all around our house and now we know all their names and some of their native uses. And that has just driven that love deeper because we've gotten to know it on that level. Or name them yourselves. Yeah. You know, um, but create relationships that don't have to do with the transaction of money, but have to do with a transaction of love, of empathy, of um, of attention. This is... Because just like the tree that, that touches you back, the plant is going to notice you back. It's going to notice that attention. And, and so are the beings that you put the, the seeds out for at the right time and, and the other beings that you don't find ways to chase off your property. Um, creating those beautiful relationships is so much more fulfilling than another thing. So maybe that's the best gift to get your valentine. You know? There you have it. <laughs> yes, the best gift right there. And outside your front door, up in the sky above you. Oh, thank you, C. Marie. Thank you so much. And thank you for the love that you're doing in this work to to help um, bring awareness and bring voices and allow people who are looking for ways to live differently and be differently and love differently, giving them those choices. Thank you so much for that. I do love you very much, Mary. Thank you. Well, right back at you. Such love. We're very fortunate. What did you say? It's a destiny. (laughs) So everybody watch for destiny. All right. Thank you. about C. Marie Furman's work at cmariefurman.com. Today we spoke of two of C. Marie's essays, Aspen and Hell's Canyon Revival. Check the show notes for links to those essays 
and to a third entitled Coyote Story. Then, here in this month of love, check out the wide stretch of love's embrace. Consider giving valentines of deep and enduring relationship with a living thing, a place, an animal, a tree. During our conversation, I also referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, published by Heyday Books and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca. Music by Alexi Demre and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.